Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Today, we're getting the band back together as we tune into ANU Poll's look at the Australian election and find out why voters preferred Morrison's solo act over Labor's symphony of policies. We also ask why the song remains the same on the economy, even as two tribes go to war over fiscal versus monetary policy. And say, please make it stop. It's like modern jazz on steroids, the discord of democracy that is Brexit. That's this week's Democracy Sausage. Welcome to Democracy Sausage, uh, recording on the first day of the September sittings of federal parliament. And gee, it's a turbulent old world, isn't it, with Brexit and events in Hong Kong. We've got the US-China trade war raging on, uh, unabated, various other problems around the world. And we've got a surprisingly sputtering, or you know, I guess unsurprisingly really sputtering global economy. So joining me here on Democracy Sausage in the ANU's Crawford School studio are three people who can bring some sanity or clarity or perhaps uh, some sort of perspective to some of these questions. Nicholas Biddle is an economist and is Associate Director of the ANU Centre for Social Research and Methods. Nick, uh, great to have you here. Thanks, Mark. Thanks thanks for having me. And Quentin Grafton, also an economist, uh, who uh, is a Director of the Centre for Water Economics, Environment and Policy. Uh, here at the ANU. Quentin, great to have you back here Thanks, with Democracy Sausage. Really, really, real pleasure to be here. And Yulia Arens, who is uh, the uh, host of Policy Forum Pod, which is recorded in these very premises uh, and f- with whom we uh, you know, have a, a, a very close relationship, of course. Great to have you here, Yulia. Thank you very much, Mark. Always a pleasure to moonlight. Yes, and you've just come back from uh, uh, travels abroad uh, in your native Germany. That's right. Among other things. That's that's right. I'm still a bit jet lagged, and uh, of course, following the Brexit debate over there, and also following uh, these two state elections in Germany, where the AfD has performed really well. So yeah. So the AfD is the uh, this is the right wing party, populist party in Germany. That's right. I mean, it was to be expected in Saxony that they. Uh, would be scoring, but they landed at 27.5%, which Yikes. is even to me a bit of a surprise. But yeah, no, definitely something a space to watch and uh, something that we, a trend that we can um, observe everywhere in the world nowadays. It is a trend we can observe everywhere now in the world, and people keep drawing parallels with and sometimes getting in trouble for drawing those parallels with uh, events of uh, half a century ago or more. Uh, and uh, I guess, um, you know, to see the rise of right-wing populist nationalism and so forth in Germany is is always going to do that, particularly in the south of Germany? Uh, it's it's more it, particularly uh, in the east, I would say, and it's something extremely um, depressing to see. Um, I myself went to um, the concentration camp in Dachau um, on the day of the elections, and it's um, a stark reminder of uh, how badly things can go. And I think it's uh, probably in, yeah, in a way, something that we need to observe. And um, interestingly enough, also, it was particularly the youth in Eastern Germany mm. that was voting for this party. And a lot of people think I would be more older people who would vote for them, but it really isn't. And it is. It shows. It goes to show how um, worried and depressed people are over there because the East is still lagging behind. 
Yes, and, and of course these are people who, if they are of the younger demographic, are people who have no memory or no sort of uh, real kind of linkages with that that uh, really terrible history. But uh, happily, uh, we remain a uh, some sort of a functioning democracy here in Australia, and uh, as they do in Germany, uh, I should <laughs> <Yeah>. say. Um, <laughs> thank goodness. <laughs> yes, thank goodness. One of the shining uh, democratic uh, uh, states, really. We also um, share the sausage uh, connection as well. We, we do have a very strong sausage link with, if, if that's not an inappropriate way of putting it. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely had too many of those over yeah. there. The bratwurst, for example. Yeah. Yes, the yes. brat, indeed. Uh, now, but the, going to the Australian in, uh, democratic system. Of course, we've just had our own election. It was the uh, so-called miracle win by Scott Morrison. And Nick, you've done some really groundbreaking research. It's fascinating. It's had a had a degree of uh, quite a good degree of coverage around the place, and we're really um, you know privileged to have you here to talk to that research. It really does overturn the idea that uh, the election was. You know, could be simply reduced to uh, Bill Shorten having had too radical an agenda, uh, and um, and and it goes some way to explaining, I guess, what what why the polls had it so wrong. Yeah, so a couple of things. I mean, I think the polls didn't really get it too wrong leading up to the election. I think what they missed is is a is a late change and where the change went. Uh, so. Uh, in um, Brexit and in the US election, I think we also had some some surprises, but the, I guess the flavor is different. Uh, we have an Australian flavor to our surprise hmm. uh, result. Uh, and I think the, the main explanation was that those who didn't know who they were going to vote for or who were going to vote for one of the other parties ended up go, uh, voting for, for Morrison and the coalition. Uh, not enough people swung towards Labor uh, and those who did move towards the coalition were enough to, to tip them over the line. And uh, even though uh, it was a bit of a shock, we need to kind of keep in mind it was still a pretty tight election and it was just, it, just enough people made that change. Yeah, well, and and let's go just so that we so that people can understand what we're talking about. Let's go a bit to your methodology because sure. what you've actually done is tracked what people said they were going to do, effectively at the start yep. of the election campaign period, and then what they did. So you yeah. can actually, and so you're talking to the same people, and mm. you can actually measure the rate of change. And you've got something yeah. like what a yeah, 28 and a half percent of people uh, changed their vote between or changed who they said they would vote for between yeah. April and the May election. It's so, absolutely astounding. No, and 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 we, um, I must admit, checked the, the data um, five, six, 18 times. <laughs> uh, this is a large result. But then we, when we kind of compared it to uh, other countries which have data over similar periods, it's not too different. Uh, and what the research has certainly shown is that there's been much more um, intra-election volatility. Uh, so there's kind of intra-elections, who you voted for one election and who you voted for the next one. But within election campaigns, uh, the, the level of volatility is increasing. Uh, and we haven't really had that data in Australia. Uh, so in April, we, we run, um, the ANU runs a series of polls, maybe three or four a year called ANU Poll. In April, we were asking about people's attitudes towards uh, higher education and gambling and a few random things. But every, every survey we ask people, if an election was held today, who would you vote for? Uh, and I kind of thought that I was going to be a pretty boring uh, finding, not going to uh, have much interest. Um, and 
partly because the, our results lined up pretty well with the polls. Uh, so what people said in April for, for the ANU poll was pretty similar to what people were saying in Poll, Galaxy, all the other ones. Uh, and then, yeah, after the election, we thought, well, that's – uh, why do we? How do we get it wrong? Uh, so what we did is is we went back to the same people uh, and asked them, who did you vote for? Uh, and also of those who changed, we said, well, what was your reason for mm. for your change? And we we're able to analyze not only the characteristics of those who change change, but also the the reasons which they gave. Now, of course. Uh, um, this might be a little bit of self-justification for people. Mm. Um, when you ask someone for their reasons, they're kind of, uh, it's always a little bit hard to articulate, but it's pretty clear the results that it was not really much to do with Morrison. Uh, it was mainly uh, either um, uh, the Labor voters who 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 left Labor uh, did so because of um, uh, Bill Shorten. Uh, there was a lot of people who, uh, who went from uh, not uh, not supporting the coalition, to supporting the, the coalition, uh, who who, um, but not many of those cited Morrison as a reason for doing so. And also, what's really interesting is is a lot of people cited uh, AOP policy as a reason for shifting to Labor. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, really, it was it was uh, as we know, as a it was really a, a an election about the opposition. Yeah, it's quite fascinating this because. Um, I mean, I noticed Wayne Swan, for example, quite recently, he's the president of the ALP these days, former treasurer, and he's advocated to Labor to, you know, not to throw the baby out with the bathwater, to to actually stick with the core basis of most of those mm. policies, to not misread the election yep. result as being a repudiation of redistributive or imaginative sort of economic policy, uh, but rather to think about the way labor related with yeah. uh, with blue collar workers particularly mm. in the regions and the way labor was seen to perhaps be too close to you know what uh, the conservatives refer to as those kind of cafe latte sort of issues yeah so so i think one of the things which is interesting about the the election it's not so much that there was a big labor policy uh it it was that there was a lot of labor policies uh and when uh, I mean, when we spend years and years going through uh, the, the results from the election, my guess is is that not what, almost all of those policies will have pretty good support uh, across the population. The problem is 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 you have lots of them, uh, and enough people disagreed with one, uh, and. Uh, and then, so if you ha- kind of have eighty percent of people mm. supporting every policy, you have kind of ten policies, and then you're eventually going to get enough people who don't support who who are against at least one of them. Uh, and yeah. we know that people are, are much more likely to to vote against things than than vote for them. So I think, I mean, Wayne Swan's point is a good one, which is that there isn't a lot of evidence in the in the data, either either our data or other data, to suggest that there was individual policies which people were against. I think it's more the the sheer number and and one of the results which in our in our poll which kind of really supported this is is we looked at people's risk aversion uh, so we asked a series of questions you know would you take um, kind of nine hundred dollars as a gamble or or five hundred dollars for sure or would you take you know, four hundred fifty for sure or what about five fifty uh, so we got a measure of risk aversion. And then what we did is we said, okay, well, how does that risk aversion relate to people's change in voting? And essentially, those who were most risk averse were those who are least likely to, to swing towards labor. So, And you can kind of see why that would be the case if you have lots of policies and you're kind of 
you, you don't you're not that willing to take risk or you or you're worried about the future then you say oh no mm -hmm. and you and you either don't swing uh or or you kind of you kind of s uh, stick with what you were going to vote for in the start and and also i think when you look at the the other voters or the, those who weren't sure um that risk aversion meant that they weren't kind of confident enough to to go to labor one question that comes to my mind here nick is there Anything that would point to the shy Tory factor? Yeah, so that's really interesting. And and to the extent that people were kind of lying both before and after the election, uh, then it's a bit hard to pick up. Uh, but certainly we found that the our post-election uh, um, um, results were quite similar to the, the actual voting uh, and our pre-election polls were quite similar to the to the other polls so it 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 might be a case for a few but it's not likely to 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 have driven the result i don't think or, or the errors in the polls uh because remember we have the same people uh and they um said they were going to vote or not going to vote for the coalition before and then did so afterwards and if kind of the shy Tory issue, then you, you'd probably find uh, errors afterwards in, in the people's uh, kind of different to what the, the, the election results actually found. So it might be an issue. I think it might be a little bit more of an issue with their subjective views uh, in, uh, in that they might be less comfortable to, to give some reasons for, for, for why they voted than other reasons. But in terms of explaining the change, I don't think that was the case here. Quentin, what do you think here? Because I, I know as a journalist reporting on uh, the government right up, up to the election effectively, um, the uh, answer that I often gave when people would when, when people would ask me, and I had said this on, in various broadcast platforms, when people would ask me what I thought was going to happen in the election, I thought Labor was going to win. I was reading the polls. Uh, I was reading all the data. It had been very consistent for a long time. And sometimes people would actually say to me, but, but voters don't like Bill Shorten. What about Bill Shorten? He's very unpopular. And they could point to the, that in the data as well. And my somewhat clever answer, I acknowledge now, it was one I, it was my theory that I, that I believed in was that, uh, Shorten's unpopularity had already been priced in by voters, that he'd, he'd already been to, he'd been opposition leader for a long time. He'd already been through an election. He'd done very well in that 2016 election, came very close to the supposedly, you know, very popular Malcolm Turnbull. Uh, and, uh, and so I was thinking, well, the, Labor's vote is holding up despite its leader almost rather than because of it. Um, and yet we now see the, the election result. It, it turns out that Shorten's unpopularity was a very strong factor with voters. Well, it does appear to be, and that's consistent with what Nicholas is saying. But, you know, if you look at the televised debates and a lot of Australians didn't actually see those, at least all of those debates. Yeah, which is probably uh, an interesting point. <laughs> which is interesting, but, yeah. you know, Shorten, uh, by the view of, of many, uh, won all of those. or at Not least, by me, though. At least drew, uh, drew. And so the question there is, you know, did he perform any worse in the, in the election campaign compared before the campaign? And I'd say no. Uh, I don't see him mm. performing in a worse way compared to during the election campaign vis-a-vis -vis before. So I think your your point is, is well taken. But I mean, there are other factors going on here. And I think Nicholas made a good point. And it's something that I've thought about, but I haven't got the data. Mm. So, so it's interesting that it sort of touches what I was thinking. There were a lot of policies that Labor had on the table. And they seem to announce the policy every new policy every few days. And, and the policies by, were almost treading on each other's toes. Well, mm. almost yes. And it's a question of messaging and how much can that 
how can that get through in, in, a, in a short election campaign? And by contrast, of course, the the uh, the coalition and, and Scott Morrison were not uh, announcing it virtually any policies. They had a couple of things that they they came up with, but they were more anti policy than 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 pro pro policy. So so that was an interesting contrast, and I think that is part of the story that we we have here. And then the third thing I would say is, of course, elections. We think about them as a you know a federal election. It's all a national scale, but of course they they're won and lost on individual electorates. And when you have a close call, which it was, uh, have however you want to sort of slice and dice this, mm. it was a close election in that sense. Then where did the LMP? Where did the Liberals and where did the Nationals win? And and then where did they? Uh, uh, were a surprise. And I suppose that's the question. And those particular electorates, uh, I think it's about a dozen of them. And then the Queensland factor, which we haven't talked about yet. And that's still a puzzle in my mind. You know, why the difference, let's say, between Queensland and Victoria? Because there were different trends between those two states in particular and what was going on. Now, I know Bill Shorten is from, from Victoria, uh, but uh, uh, Scott Morrison, of course, is not from Queensland. He's a New South Wales man. So so I, I don't know. I don't know what – I don't have an answer to that. Maybe Nicholas can, fe- can come in. But I think the Queensland factor was important. Those indiv- individual electorates were important. And I'm, I'm not, I, don't, I don't have an understanding of how they, they went the way they, they went. Yeah. Well, can I just pick up one of the things you said there before we go to that Queensland? And I think I'd throw Western mm. Australia in there as well. Yes. The two big mining states really didn't go with Labor. But the other issue, and you, you, you touched on it there, was the fact that actually when you look at the election, not all that much happened. And the difference between – take uh, – I was reading Dennis Altman's piece in the Australian uh, Book Review and he was making the point that not much really happened between in terms of aggregate numbers between 2016 and mm. 2019, but the government was expected to win 2016 very handsomely and, and, and only just got over the line by one seat. We see that pretty much the same result. They've got a what, two-seat majority now um, in 2019, but the expectations around it were completely different. The expectation was that Labor was going to win, that Labor was going to storm home, that uh, the coalition's disarray and leadership changes and, and, and lack of policy and all those other things was, was all going to, you know, they were going to be turfed out unceremoniously, and they weren't. And so there was relatively little that happened in sort of aggregate electoral terms but a huge mm, shift very in expectations. Mm. And uh, so getting back to the point on, uh, I think the, the the local issue comes out in our data as well. So more than a quarter of our respondents said that their views on the local candidate was what changed their vote. Uh, and we kind of did have a uh, almost close to the most presidential of elections, at least mm. which which I can remember. In in that it was Morrison, yeah, certainly uh, on the government and side, yeah. from the government side, yes. Yeah. So uh, obviously on the opposition, there was there was a, a a few more voices, but the data kind of suggests that well, no, people's views on their on their local candidate can shift things, and and I think your point about a very close election is a, is a good one because all, I mean we, we were kind of talking about all that, and the betting markets I think were even stronger than the polls. Yeah, they, were paying, uh, they were actually paying out on Labour I know, I know. on Monday of the final week. <laughs> That's uh, someone's probably going to lose their job over that um, or has. Um, but yeah, and, and so you have uh, a close-ish margin uh, leading up to the election and 
at quite a lot of people who were still undecided, I guess, uh, and and enough of those were swayed either based on their local candidate or based on based on some of the other factors to 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 change the result. And so for me, I think it's a um, somewhat uh, um, heartening finding uh, that local candidates still matter, uh, well, and is, that yeah. and that you you can have and and we don't know from our data whether it was kind of local candidates turn people away or, or sw- so we don't actually know whether it's a, it was a good thing or a bad thing, but certainly a good local candidate can, can change enough people that, that overall you get that, um, uh, at, at that narrow victory. One of the things that's a truism said of politics, democratic politics, and uh, certainly said in Australia that it's you know it's always the economy. Mm. And you mentioned this issue of risk before and risk aversion. Um, what, what do we think about the idea that, um, even though the orthodoxy was that with all the turmoil in, 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 the, in the government, the change of leadership and everything else was meant to be a big negative. But Morrison came in, as you say, sort of essentially turned it into a one-man band mm. in the lead-up, certainly in the campaign. Uh, and he therefore sort of removed a level of risk from people. There's a fair degree of economic insecurity, and we'll come to the we'll talk about the economy in a minute more specifically, but... Was this risk aversion and the vulnerability in the economy? We know, you know, consumers are keeping their wallets shut, mm-hmm. and when they do get a bit of money, they're paying down debt and so forth. So there's, there's very little jobs growth is very um, well. Jobs growth is not bad, but wage growth is you know flat as hell. And mm-hmm. and so I'm thinking, was this a miscalculation in terms by Labor in terms of um, how much risk they thought voters would buy? Mm-hmm. Well, my perspective on that is, uh, if you voted for the coalition, you're voting for status quo. I mean, that, I think that was pretty clear. But the status quo sort of had been toxic and Morrison well, it had been to it had, it, I, I, he, it had been toxic, but it toxic in, in the way in terms of their internal uh, confusions <laughs> in, in 2018. Of course, leadership change and all the other stuff leading up to that. But I think from my perspective, it was the status quo. So if you, if you felt concerned about the future – and I think a lot of Australians are concerned about the future, but we're not in a crisis mode. And we'll get to those statistics at the moment, but we're not in crisis mode at the moment. It's not a it's not a two thousand and eight uh, moment. So if you if you if you're not in a crisis mode and you want someone to sort of keep things steady as they as as they go, sort of so to speak, then that's the status quo that you'll want to to, to tick the box for. If, on the other hand, you're concerned about risks and you've got a series of policies that may have an impact negatively, let's say, on the housing market or in terms of incomes for, 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 for people who are retired, for example, all those sorts of things that creates a risk environment and say, well, maybe I don't want to go for that. Things are going okay. I'll go for the status quo. Now, compare that to, let's say, a crisis situation uh, when we had, let's say, the United States as a, as a better example, I think, than Australia, you know, when we had the, the global financial crisis, the Great Recession. I mean, I think one of the reasons Barack Obama got elected as president is because there really was a crisis <laughs> and status quo wasn't going to cut it with most Americans. And so Barack Obama had a plan and had a series of actions that he was going to do. And they said, well, okay, maybe it may be a little risky, <laughs> but we need to do something different. Mm. And I think Plus that's... they were at a change election anyway. They were certainly at a change election. I mean, they, they, but we could have argued, you could argue that since 2019 was an at a change election as well. Mm. Um, so, but that would be my, that'd yeah. be my take on it. So people, I think, ultimately went for the status quo. If we had a major crisis, I think that would be a different matter. <laughs> but we haven't had one, thank you, for a yeah. long time. So well, we'll come to whether we're yeah. going to have one uh, <laughs> shortly. We'll just take a quick break now, but we'll come back and we'll talk about whether we are actually... 
perhaps listing towards maybe not you know an acute crisis, but certainly a, a an economic downturn and where that could go. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. All right, welcome back. Now, look, we were talking before about risk and so forth. There's some big risks in the global economy, Quentin, uh, the, and we see that the Australian economy is not doing as well as the government had predicted. It was all meant to be roses. That was the message in the election campaign. But uh, the uh, the last quarter of growth has not been particularly good news for the government. No, it's still positive. And in terms of an annual rate, it's 1.4%. But that I would call as anemic growth. I mean, we'll be looking for 3%. And, uh, and the budget had, fa- had uh, figured in around that. Yeah. yeah so, so we're clearly beneath uh, or below where we would expect to be. So if you want to look at the glass as being half full, which I think the, the, the treasurer is looking in that direction, then you'll say, well, things are going to get better. Mm. You know, we'll have the tax cuts come through. There's almost certainly going to be a reduction in the cash rate from the Reserve Bank of Australia. Another one. Uh, well, I'm thinking possibly another two. Mm. Uh, then then say, just, just hang, hang in there. Things are going to work out fine. It, uh, property prices are picking up in the last quarter in uh, Sydney and Melbourne. That's not nationally, but certainly in those two, two important sectors. So, so that's the glass half full story. St- st- stick with us. We're going to generate a surplus. We've got interest rates coming down thanks to the RBA. We've got uh, a treasurer on the, on, on the ball, so to speak, tax cuts, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, I think that's the story that line that they're, they're, they're passing out and of course look back in the you know in the rearview mirror and you see that we're now in the 29th year of uh, of continuous economic growth although we've had uh, uh, some hiccups in the last 29 years <laughs> but nevertheless that so it's it's this 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 good news story and you can have another story of course the glass is half empty story and uh, I'm not here to be a doom and gloomer but certainly there are very important risks for the Australian economy. And I think trying to minimize those risks, I think, uh, is not helpful. I think it, people need to be aware of those risks and they need to plan for those risks. And uh, there are certainly a, a number of them on the horizon. And so uh, we have to, I think, uh, be well aware of the sorts of things and decisions that we're making, not only at a federal level, but at a state level. And indeed, uh, I would say it's a, you know, it's a clear and present warning for us to be very, very on the ball, I would say. Those, those risks uh, that you talk about, um, I, I guess, what principally you're talking about what we're seeing happening from abroad, uh, what the government uh, so often refers to as the global economic headwinds. Uh, it's also forming part of the government's uh, rationale for where we are now, which is to say, okay, growth isn't as good as we had hoped or had priced into the budget and so forth. But um, but look at these other places. Look at the US. Look at Britain. Look at Germany. Look at Japan. Uh, these are the, the these these economies are doing more poorly than we are. Therefore, Australia is um, you know in a, in, a, in a fairly good place. But I think it also underscores, which is your point, really, that um, there are risks amounting, and we need to be very active. And that's what Philip Lowe seems to be saying, the Governor of the Reserve Bank. Well, I mean, there's an important risk, of course. Is that- Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. 
But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. The debt-to-disposable income ratio we have in Australia is one of the highest in the world. It's around 190%. So go back a few years, it was 170%. You know? So, so that's, that's a risk. Uh, you know, what happens to interest rates? Of course, we, we expect them to go down in the, in the next uh, foreseeable future, but but for example, if interest rates, oh, I should say rates of inflation would be the trigger for that, were to change, if the inflationary expectations were to change and interest rates were to start to rise, and I'm not saying they are going to, but if they were in the next uh, couple of years, for example, and some pundits uh, just less than a year ago were saying that's where mm. they were going, mm. so it's, it's not so out, of the, out of the ordinary to say that, then, then the whole world would change because the assets – and the asset prices that we have both in the stock markets and the financial world and indeed in the property markets all all based on having very low yields and if yields were to change and, and change in a surprise way then i think that would have a big impact on asset prices a big impact on consumer confidence and i think ultimately a big impact both on investment and future growth so that could happen i'm not saying it will happen but that's a, that's a major risk so i guess one of the other risks is that a lot of the economic growth is kind of underpinned by population growth. Uh, and while the GDP, overall GDP figures aren't great, the GDP per capita figures are even worse. Uh, and I think the support amongst the general population for continuously growing population to, to support economic growth, I don't know if it's there. So uh, I think if either for political reasons or, or other reasons that that growing population was to change, I think that might have an, an effect on on not only overall growth but also on, on per capita growth as as the the because migrants do tend to bring kind of economic benefits to the country. So I think that's another potential risk which is maybe not um, factored in but but could could change things. Nick, uh, Quentin and Mark, you've talked a lot, of, a lot about the risks. So I would like to kind of look at well, what can we do about those risks, really. Um, Philip Lowe also said that the government should be more doing more to generate um, economic activity. So I'm wondering, should we be betting on short-term incentives or should we be hoping for and betting on the surplus, really? What would be the better option? Yeah, so I think there's fiscal policy and monetary policy are kind of pulling a little bit in opposite directions at the moment. I don't think that's going to be able to last. Uh, I think at some stage. But would you say that? Sorry to interrupt, but would you say that's true uh, of the situation that will obtain in this quarter? I mean, because the government's Mm -hmm. making the point that those something like fifteen billion dollars worth of tax cuts that have been dialed in, they they didn't show up Mm -hmm. in the previous quarter, the one we're talking about, uh, but they are going to show up in the September quarter. Uh, and so that's going to have a, a, a stimulatory effect, as is, an, you know, as is some of the money that's uh, going to uh, being sort of fast tracked in infrastructure and so forth. So, yeah, so, so I guess two responses to that. One is is that um, we do have data on retail sales, uh, and that certainly hasn't responded to the tax cuts. And secondly, 
it's we well, kind of talked about the the election campaign. It's not like the tax cuts were a surprise. Uh, mm. So it's not like the uh, this was a. Um, I mean, the tax cut policies were flagged well ahead of the election, and Labor, while they didn't support all of them, were quite supportive of of tax cuts, at, at least at the low and, and middle income part of the distribution, and therefore people's expectations about what taxes might be. Could potentially have 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 fed into the um, the previous quarter's GDP growth and didn't. Yeah, well, it's an interesting point, mm. I guess. But the government's going to stick to it. What it, stick to its you know argument at the moment? Sure. What I think is interesting about it, though, Quentin, is that there's this is essentially a kind of a, a I guess the intersection between economic policy and political imperatives. As you mentioned, we're in the 20, 29th year of continuous growth, which, I mean, no government wants to be the government that presided over breaking that mm. that uh, extraordinary run. Uh, yet at the same time, the, this government wants to be the first government to have delivered an actual budget surplus since, you know, the Howard years. Uh, so th- there's, there's two political imperatives there, but they, there's some risk involved if they – Push too hard on making sure they've got this, you know, this big surplus. Um, we're probably in surplus now, aren't we? Well, I, I would imagine the story they would like to tell is this: so, uh, and make an announcement in the next couple of weeks that the budget is in surplus and get the the kudos that comes with that. And then, if the if the the proverbial whatever hits the fan uh, <laughs> next year, uh, then they can uh, Start do some do, do some stimulus and say, well, we had to. And look at Labor; they did that in two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine. It's just natural, and we would have had ongoing surpluses if if we hadn't had this this bad stuff happen. Well, that's so, true. We would have had ongoing surplus surpluses. <laughs> And we would have gone into recession. We would not be in the twenty. So, so, so that's the story. I suspect they they, they want to tell, and uh, you know, going you know, back in black. But, but I I think that's missing the point. And I think that for the for the many Australians and millions of Australians who live from one pay packet to another, and that's about six million, I think, uh, Australians that do that. And if they're looking at their real wages and real salaries, that hasn't fundamentally changed in in, in ten years. Okay, so. Obviously, people will get promoted and, and have an increase in salary. But overall, we haven't had a fundamental shift there in terms of our real uh, uh, living standards. So that is an ongoing problem. We talked about productivity growth in this country for ad nauseum. We do talk about it a lot. <laughs> but but we, we've never seemed to be able to do anything about it. And, and so I think that those long-term policy issues in terms of economic policy, tax reform, I don't just mean tax cuts – tax reform on a whole scale level. The whole issue about what's happening in terms of how government is spending its money on submarines or whatever it might be, you know, a national water grid, et cetera. Is that a good use of funds? Can we be spending it in a more effective way in terms of, let's say, better transmission in terms of a national energy grid? Uh, what are the states doing? You know, all those sorts mm. of big, big, big questions about the nature of regulation. Is that being done effectively, you know, in terms of a bill? You know, we can go on and on. We've had a series of royal commissions that indicate that the, the, the private sector isn't delivering the way it should be delivering. And we have these exposés, but what, what, are the, what are the implications from that? So I, I would say let's sort of take it up a little level or two and say what actually is this government and other governments are going to do if there is a crisis and what are their, is their plan ongoing for productivity growth and all the other good things that we need to to get the living standards starting to go up rather than being sidelined for the for, as they have for the last decade. That productivity question is an interesting one though. Uh, you say that there hasn't really been significant product, productivity go, growth but most 
uh, people listening to this, I imagine, would uh, be in workplaces that they would say over the last 10 years have fewer people in them. Mm. Uh, they're working longer hours. They're producing more. Uh, you know, the technology is facilitating that. Certainly in the industry, industry I come from, media uh, has been quite extraordinary. The contraction of uh, the size of new newsrooms and the, you know, the rolling deadlines, the increasing output that is expected of people. Isn't that a productivity gain for well, productivity is a measure of output over inputs. And so if you're getting more output or equivalent output from a few inputs, then, you know, certainly on a labor productivity measure, you'd be getting a, a gain from, from the industry you're talking about. And that about. would be the experience of a lot of people, wouldn't it? Whether, whether they work mm. in, in hospitals or shops mm. or, or. Well, this or, is the conundrum of the, you know, where is this? productivity gain is it can we measure it and, and what sectors are we measuring or not being able to measure it effectively so that's the that's the question mark and if we are getting a productivity gains and the data doesn't indicate that we're getting the gains that people uh, would have thought we would have got then then who's getting the who's getting the benefit because uh, as I just highlighted, you know, we, we haven't had uh, living standards on an average basis um, growing, you know, for the last so many years. So, so that would be a question, well, who's getting it? Who's, if we're getting these productivity gains, uh, which need to be measured, where, where's it going? Well, maybe it explains why, uh, mm. you know, large companies are actually experiencing record profits. Mm. Well, that's right. If you want to look at salaries and over the last 10 years, they're basically sidelined. If you look at uh, profits, they've gone straight up. Yeah. So labor costs so, as a share of profits has been reducing. So mm. the, the, those, are the, those are the question marks that, that we have about the economy. But look, it's, it's not just an issue about you know, equity here. It's, a, it's an issue about growing this overall pie for everybody at the different income levels. And, and I, we just haven't been doing that. And, and I think it's worthwhile highlighting this is September 2019. You know, September 2008 was, of course, the, you know, the, the start of the global financial crisis. Lehman Brothers went bankrupt just you know, almost 11 years ago. <laughs> Um, so, so uh, where are we now today in 2019 compared to where we were 11 years ago? And y we still haven't got back to normal in terms of monetary policy. It's record low cash rate. We still haven't got an increase in living standards. We had big increases in the early 2000s, but we're not having that over the last decade. So, so something has fundamentally happened here in Australia and globally. And uh, we need to work on that and how we can f get the uh, better outcomes for Australians. And uh, I think part of what I would be saying is, uh, you know, just generating a surplus in one particular financial year, as, as, as much as we can applaud that, is not going to deliver for Australia or Australians. We're going to have to do much, much better than that. Nick, do you think that uh, lower growth post-GFC, as Quentin's talking about, is kind of the new normal globally? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to it's hard to tell because I mean, I think Quinton had a had a good point about measurement and and the extent to which the kind of um, the technology isn't necessarily uh, bringing the the measured benefits which uh, which we've seen from other uh, technological change. So yes, you can kind of speak to your to to your grandparents or your kids uh, on on FaceTime, but that doesn't necessarily show up in in economic growth rates. So I think there's a partly the the a difficulty in capturing some of the technological change uh, in our in our GDP measures, and that's not easy. Uh, and I think also the some of the the drivers of 
of growth aren't necessarily there, which we've seen in the past. There's limits to to how much China can can kind of bring the world along with it, uh, and uh, and there's a measurement issue around yeah. the extent to which the Chinese economy is actually growing as, as fast as <laughs> there it. are some measurement issues <laughs> yes. there. That's true. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I think I wouldn't necessarily say it's 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 the new normal, but it's it's more challenging, I guess. That some of the 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 easier sources or or the more obvious sources of economic growth aren't there. So. One of the uh, challenges that we're uh, seeing in the world, of course, is Brexit. That's creating enormous instability. And uh, it brings me to a new segment that I want to do uh, each week, which is a tweet of the week, uh, where I'll either I or someone else will uh, just sort of uh, come up with uh, what was a you know some of the funnier or more interesting tweets that happened through the week, because of course it is a a forum in which uh, you know some pretty funny things get said. And um, I was listening to a fascinating interview with Jeffrey Robertson, the Australian, dual Brit, Australian citizen, uh, barrister and writer and so forth. He was talking with uh, Geraldine Doog on Saturday Extra on Saturday morning and he was describing uh, Brexit as a very British comedy. And uh, I thought uh, it was a, a particularly, uh, you know, and he mentioned it was a bit like Monty Python, although I suspect it's probably closer to Faulty Towers. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, he one of the things that had come up in in that first week. I mean, it's been such a horrendous week for uh, for Boris Johnson or Bojo, as some of them are calling him now, <laughs> um, to go with Scomo. Uh, but you know, like he he, he was going to be this guy that solved the whole problem. They solved, you know, he was going to fix Brexit. He was going to negotiate a new deal. And of course, none of that has happened. He's gone into Parliament. Finally, he's lost everything. He's lost votes. He couldn't get. Uh, he couldn't. He, he had no deal taken off the table by the Parliament that's about to become law. He couldn't get an election that he said he didn't want and then was demanding. Uh, and uh, he's now in a situation where he's saying he's not going to go back and uh, negotiate an extension with Europe, even though even though that is exactly what the mm. parliament has passed. So there's going to be – there's the potential here for a constitutional crisis. That may resolve in the next few days depending on what the Queen does. But um, it's really quite an extraordinary situation. At the height of all this, John Burko, the Speaker of the House of Commons – was sitting down Michael Gove, a Tory frontbencher, and he was saying to him uh, something along the lines of, you know, he's being very rowdy in the, in, the, in the chamber here, but he's not that sort of person when I see him at where our kids go to school. You know, so here are these two sort of Tory uh, sort of you know, ruling class types talking about their kids' school and uh, the speaker lamenting that uh, Michael Gove is uh, – not behaving as the normal sort of gentleman that he is at his school, and a Canadian foreign correspondent who was uh, who was watching all this, aghast, tweeted, "Can anyone prove that Britain is real?" Uh, <laughs> you know, it was just just extraordinary. Now that was a uh, that, that that was actually picked up by mm. uh, by our friends at Romaniacs, a uh, a podcast mm. that we've had some links with, and uh, one of the great uh, podcasts that gives you a a description of. Um, of uh, what's going on in Britain, but it's extraordinary to uh, to think about uh, this, just the way it's playing out. This is the the sort of mother parliament, really, mm. of, for Australia's parliament, and we have a situation where the prime minister no longer has anywhere near the numbers. He's had he's lost another minister. Amber Rudd has uh, has has left over the weekend. He lost his brother from the ministry, uh, Joe Johnson. Um, uh, you know, a few days before that, and of course there were those twenty one. Uh, Tories mm. who crossed the floor and left the party. Twenty of those were actually former ministers. Two mm. of them were former treasurers, effectively, you know, chancellors of the exchequer. So really an extraordinary situation. I think it is extraordinary. And I just to highlight that 
it, there's this expression that uh, in a calm sea, anyone can be a pilot. Okay, <laughs> uh, but in a crisis situation, you actually really do need the real thing. And I think ultimately, uh, bluster seemed to do has done very well for some politicians. They managed to make it right to the top, but ultimately, bluster doesn't deal with problems. You actually have to have a plan. You have to implement it, and you have to get people on side. And the extraordinary situation we see in the United Kingdom reminds me. I'm not a historian, but it certainly reminds me from my history. Uh, Charles the First. Uh, when he tried to and did prorogue uh, Parliament, and of course uh, Oliver Cromwell, who uh, ended up on top after the uh, the Civil War and the English Civil War, and of course what he did as well. So it's uh, this this notion that, from my perspective, is Parliament is supreme, and Parliament must call the shots, and the Prime Minister is there with the privilege and the confidence of the Parliament that applies to the United Kingdom and it applies mm. to Australia. We borrowed that system from them. And so to have in a situation where a prime minister is is, con, is acting in a way contrary to parliament is, in my view, uh, it, it's – well, the only, the only, the only uh, comparison I can have is, is Charles I. So mm. that, that's, that's, how, how, that's my sort of view on it and it's extraordinary. It, it's hard to imagine how it's going to play out, Julia. I mean um... – it you know it, it it just keeps getting weirder and weirder. Uh, it seems to be, and I mean, uh, in Germany, if you just have a chat on the street to people, most people just uh, acquit this with an eye roll and go like, "Well, well, we'll see where where it will all go." Um, but at the same time, I think many people, after Johnson paid a visit to Germany, had the feeling that there might be a solution to the Irish backstop only for him to hit the wall with Emmanuel Macron mm. later uh, that week. So um, I personally didn't even know it was possible to prorogue parliament in that way. So quite, um, yeah, quite surprising from, from that standpoint. But then on the other hand, I'm kind of prepared for anything to happen right now. The, I mean, obviously, the, it's having a very chilling effect on the economy, uh, particularly mm. the Brit British economy, but it's not doing anyone any good particularly. But that may dwarf what happens if this Brexit were actually to occur, particularly without mm. any sort of deal. Um, and that's at least theoretically still a possibility, mm. although the, the, the parliament has passed a law that says that can't happen. But mm. of course, there are two parties to this deal. There's Europe and, and Britain, of course. Mm. And it still has to be signed into law, and there's there's no haven't passed. Parliament hasn't passed anything which says how they want to avoid no deal, and that's the problem. Mm. Uh, everyone can agree that that they want no deal. Everyone, uh, well, not everyone, but uh, most people can agree that they should kind of reflect the referendum vote. But it's the how which is the challenge, and I guess that's you can mentioned kind of is is uh, Britain real? I mean, I guess they're kind of facing reality now, which is you know, arithmetic rules, uh, and you can't you, you three doesn't go into two. All the you, know, you, you can't. Uh, there's things which are mutually contradictory, uh, and I guess it's working through how to actually implement a very very broad and general question. Yeah, it's just uh, astounding to think that they've taken, they've gone so far. They've been three mm. years in this process, and as you say, Nick, they, they, all they've really done is say what they won't do. Mm. No one has ever really said what they can do, or or, or the parliament has never stood up mm. and said this is a, a pathway forward. So even when they had those eight options on the table, they they, they negatived all of them, mm. uh, and th so they get to the situation now where the parliament has taken it back from the prime minister, and I think that's actually. 
perhaps a little underappreciated the significance of that. Certainly in the Australian situation, that would be extraordinary mm. for uh, uh, for the parliament to have essentially assumed executive functions from from the government of the day. It's, it, it amounts to a lack of confidence in the in the prime minister, but. Um, how it's going to be resolved, we don't know because Labor doesn't want to have the election before mm. such time as yeah. the, the no-deal thing has become law and there is no mm. way for Boris Johnson to manipulate the situation otherwise. But he's out there already campaigning. Mm. Well, I mean, from on the sidelines, uh, if given I, I'm, I'm not living in the United Kingdom, but I mean, the obvious approach, of course, and there's so many reasons why this is not happening, is the second referendum. I mean, mm. people need to go to a second referendum. They make the call of whatever is on the table, whether it's actually a no-deal Brexit or whether it's a, a, the deal that, that Theresa May had negotiated, which didn't pass, or, or whatever it is, and it's a clear vote about whether people want that or or they want something else to remain. And that, that, that to me, is, is the the obvious way to resolve this, but there's all sorts of things that are getting in the way, <laughs> personal ambitions, et cetera, et cetera. So until and unless we have that, this I don't think will be resolved, even even if we get beyond the the, the uh, October 31st deadline, uh, that's not going to be a resolution. I agree, I yeah. agree. But the, the, the moral sort of argument that's always put by the levers, by the people who voted to, to get out of Europe, and, and the, the Tories are now a party that is essentially lined up there, mm. um, their argument is always that it's that it's undemocratic. This is the elites trying to engineer a second vote to overturn the first vote that the people spoke. They spoke clearly back in 2017. Was it 17? 16. Uh, and the people spoke clearly when they did that and that uh, to, to have a second vote is to really sort of, you know, ignore the democratic free will of the people. But the same people who are mounting that argument are now mounting an argument for an election, having mm. only had an election in 2017. Uh, so, you know, I'm not sure what the moral basis mm. of that is. Well, I mean, the, the, the vote was won by the Brexit, Brexiters by 52 to 48 uh, percent. There was no clarity about what that nature of that deal would be. It was the be. antithesis of informed consent. Mm. Well, you know, I, I lived in a country, Canada, and, uh, you know, through two referenda, okay, in relation to Quebec, the province of Quebec wanting to become independent. So they had a first vote and that didn't work uh, in the sense that the separatists didn't win that vote. Then they had a second vote and uh, I uh, fully supported the second vote. I thought that was the appropriate thing to do. If people in Quebec as a, a significant majority wanted to leave, then let them leave. But having a second referendum was not anti-democratic. It was quite the reverse. Mm. So it's not it's, it's, it's only anti-democratic if you don't want a referendum, it seems to me. And, mm. and it's not anti-democratic to want the parliament to be supreme. I, I, I think that's how it should be. That's the nature of the unwritten constitution in the United Kingdom. So, so both of those points, Parliament Supreme, a second referendum with a clear question to me is, is being democratic. This is the democracy sausage. Mm. I don't, and anything that suggests otherwise to me is anti-democratic and supporting a particular perspective. And I understand that you know, there are forces on both sides of this, but uh, that seems to me they're fairly clear from the sidelines. What, what, what's the Makes sense to me. Mm. I guess democracy is in the eye of the beholder, <laughs> but it turns out uh, – um, oh, we have one question that we want to get to. Yulia, do you want to introduce that? Yeah, of course. So, um, of course, news has been dominated by Brexit and by the state of Australia's economy. But it, 
I think most people who have been paying a bit of attention have also been following the case of the Sri Lankan family that's currently on Christmas Island. We had a comment by our fellow podcast listener, Mark Zanka, and he wrote, On the issue of ministerial discretion, this is generally non-justiciable in our legal system. If legal legislation reposes an absolute discretion in a, mini- in a minister, as it does in immigration cases generally, no question of law has to be has the appropriateness of the exercise of that discretion arises. Morrison and Dutton might well hold the line in the case of the Biluela Sri Lankans, but they will hold that line successfully. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, if you have a ministerial discretion, that's exactly what it is. Uh, you can't challenge that as long as the minister is operating within that discretion. So this is essentially a political question mm. for the government. Uh, mm. And the government's line is, we're not going to make an exception here because that would mean that we would need to be making those sort of on the grounds of that, you know, this um, family, you know, having a case, uh, even though it doesn't have a case at law, it has a case, you know, on, on compassionate grounds. If we make that exception here, then we're going to have to make it for thousands of other families that, uh, you know, that, that make the application. That's the government's line. Uh, and just as it's not justiciable uh, whether it, whether the minister does that or not, it's also uh, the case that um, that's a kind of um, that's a decision that's unappealable by mm. anyone else either because it's in that field of uh, a judgment by a minister. Well, f- gosh, we might even get a point where the minister of immigration might allow their discretion to have an au pair come to <laughs> come to Australia, and a whole bunch of au pairs could be flying in to Australia. Mm. So you wouldn't want that to happen. You wouldn't want that discretion being used in that particular way, would you? You're not suggesting an inconsistency of application <laughs> here. I, I, I of course not. <laughs> Discretion has to be consistent and we can't imagine it. It wouldn't be. Well, I guess it does raise the question, why do you have discretion? Mm. And you have discretion because we're dealing with human beings. We're dealing with circumstances that are extremely complex and not, and in many cases unforeseeable. Mm. Uh, and so the law provides the basic framework and the minister has a discretion in certain circumstances to say, well, no, this is a special case. Yeah, you can't prescribe every single circumstance in law uh, mm. and therefore you need some some outlet, I guess. And I guess the challenge is is that if you are making more of the precedent, so this is going to be a precedent, this is going to be a precedent, and then you're backing yourself into a corner. Yeah. And if it was done quietly, then then the precedent will be uh, less effective. Yeah. And so the, in a way, the government's saying because this has become a major public mm. issue, that has made it impossible to exercise that discretion quietly. Mm. But why did it become a major public issue, I guess, is the question. And, well, and could the, it be done quietly beforehand? This uh, Biloela family has uh, obviously been through all levels mm. of the judicial system right up to the high court. Uh, There's now the subject of a federal court uh, injunction and there'll be further hearings about whether the youngest daughter can uh, have application mm. to uh, an Australian visa, uh, having been born here. And th- I think that's the sort of legal question that's going to be resolved. But uh, I, for one, can't see the government turning course on this. Mm. Uh, I think... No. Um, Regrettably, it is uh, it's all going one way and that family will um, find itself back in Sri Lanka and it can make then application, members of the family can make application to come back to Australia, but that's a, an entirely separate process. Uh, very interesting question and a really sad case, obviously, and highlights you know the many sad cases that we don't get to see. Mm. Uh, thanks so much for joining us, Yulia Arans, uh, Quentin Grafton and Nicholas Biddle. Uh, it's been a great pleasure having you on Democracy Sausage and uh, thanks you for listening. Thank See you, you next week. Thank you.
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.